What's up, Scottsdale Bible Church? How are you? It's nice to see you. Why is this stool so short? Is this Jamie's? This is Jamie's, isn't it? He can't fire me. Um, my name is Lucas Cooper. It's good to see you this morning. I know so many of you. I see a lot of familiar faces this morning. Some of you don't uh, know me. Uh, I served on staff here for eight years, uh, like Neil said, as a worship pastor, as a, a venue pastor, helped launch the venue campus, joining us this morning. I uh, worked with Steve Erickson, who's over shepherding Mountain Valley. Welcome, Mountain Valley. Worked with Rick Coleman and Carson over at Cactus Campus. Worked with Ray Larson, as a matter of fact, over at the chapel. And uh, none of them liked me, so they sent me to Canada. Uh, and so I've been pastoring Baby Glen Church in Toronto for the last two and a half years. They let me come back here and preach on occasion because when, I, when Jamie first started here, I predated Jamie. I started a couple years before he came, and I had an opportunity to work with Daryl, Pastor Daryl. So many of you guys remember him. Uh, so when, I first start, uh, when Jamie first started, he and I took a little trip to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan with a couple of other folks to check out video venues because we weren't doing video venues at the time, and we wanted to go check out this church that was, that was doing some great things in Grand Rapids. And Jamie's brother, Pete, picked us up at the airport. airport. Do you know Pete, Neil? Yeah, so Jamie's brother, Pete, picks us up at the airport. So we get off the plane, and Jamie had already arrived, so it was me and a couple other folks. And Pete is holding this picture of Jamie when he was 15 years old. And on the top it says, do you know this man? That's how he identified us. So, so I uh, grabbed that picture actually from Pete and I've kept it all this time. So uh, I actually brought it this morning, put it up here on the screen for you. You think I'm stupid, don't you? <laughs> I got you, Jamie, just in case you're watching on live stream. Um, yeah, and, and then just before we even, I don't, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to do it anyway, because last time I preached here back in July, how many of you were with us back in July when I was here a couple weeks? Yeah, so uh, I was here for a couple weeks, and then I, I like to watch Jamie preach because he's a great preacher, and I learn a lot, and he has great insights from God's Word, and so I just learn a lot uh, for myself and my Christian walk through Jamie's preaching. So the following week, I was watching Jamie preach, and he made fun of my hair. Do you remember this? Were you guys, yeah, everybody remembers this because I had short hair on the sides and long on the top and I had a little line shaved in and he said I look like a backup dancer from Madonna. That was his exact words, which, which is, you know, like, you know, you go through like comments in your head and you go, well, that's not appropriate. I can't say that. And that's not appropriate. I can't say that. That's what I'm thinking right now about Jamie. Okay. Uh, but, but here's, here's the one that I think I can say as if he's the most fashion-forward dude on the planet. You know what I mean? Like, like, and he, like, he has the exact opposite haircut, right? Short on the top and long on the sides. You know what I mean? You've seen it? Jamie, I hope you're watching on live stream or video after the fact. You're just jealous. Jamie's been a good friend and mentor to me. Uh, that's uh, obviously uh, men in the room. You know that that's the international language of love between men is sarcasm. But uh, Jamie, uh, is a, he's a mentor and a friend, and uh, I owe a lot to him just in my personal walk with Jesus, in my marriage, in my ministry. Uh, you really are a privileged church to have a pastor that loves you so much like Jamie loves you and preaches well and leads well. Uh, and I had the opportunity. I still, he still really is a pastor to me in so many ways. So... Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about prayer. 
if that's okay, uh, just as we launch into 2016 here. And I want to take a look at prayer from a little bit of a different angle and maybe help you frame it a little bit differently, help you understand it just a little bit differently. I don't want you to walk out of here this morning with a heavy load on your shoulders. I want you to walk out of uh, this morning, uh, Cactus Venue, Mountain Valley, and Chapel as well. All of us walk out of here thinking, uh, I want to take the yoke of Jesus upon me, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. You with me? And so I want to kind of lift that burden off of our hearts and give us freedom as we go to God in prayer. And so let's do that this morning. Let's pray together, invite him to speak, and then we'll get into our text together. God, we do invite you to speak this morning in this place. Holy Spirit of God, we believe that you are here and moving. For those that don't know you have never said yes to your invitation of grace, Pray this morning, God, that they would hear today that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that you have grace upon grace for them. Father, for those of us who walk with you, whether we've been walking with you for a week or for 50, 60, 70 years, some of us, would you draw us closer to yourself today? Conform us more into the image of Jesus as we look into your word together. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, Amen. Amen. So this past July, uh, uh, so many of you were here, but for those of you who weren't here, we will catch you up to speed. We took a look at Colossians chapters 1, 2, and then a little bit of chapter 3. And so here's what we said from the book of Colossians this past July, because we're going to be in Colossians this morning. What we said is that Jesus is the designer, creator, and sustainer of the universe. Do you remember this? Jesus is the designer, creator, and sustainer of the universe, and that Jesus made himself personal and knowable by coming in the flesh 2,000 years ago. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. And then in Colossians 1, verse 27, Paul makes this unbelievable statement, spectacular statement, that that Jesus that upholds the universe by the very word of his power now lives in you, and he is your confident assurance that he will finish his work in you, that he won't give up on you. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 27, he is your hope of glory. And then in chapter 3, Paul makes this transition once he establishes this very rich, compelling, deep Christology of understanding who Jesus is. He makes this transition in chapter 3, and he begins to talk about the practical implications and applications of that rich and compelling Christology. So he says this in chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, Paul is saying, now that God's grace has made you alive in Christ, now that you're raised with Christ, now that you're new in Christ, now that you've been regenerated, you need to orient your mind and heart, orient your will, orient your whole life around those things, around Christ. And Paul begins to unfold these practical implications, and he talks about all kinds of things that that Christology and the fact that Jesus dwells in us, and we've been raised to new life in him, all kinds of things that that now impacts. It impacts our character. It impacts our families. It impacts our sexuality. It impacts our thoughts and affections. It impacts all of these things. And as Paul begins to wrap up his letter in Colossians chapter 4, I love what Paul does at the end of a lot of his letters. He just kind of goes rapid fire on applications, and he just kind of goes at it, and he says, do this and do this and do this now that you've been raised with Christ and one of those exhortations that he concludes with in chapter 4 of Colossians is an exhortation to pray it's a commandment of God 
inspired by God through the Apostle Paul, a commandment to pray. But before we get to that commandment in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, I want to set us up a little bit by sharing a little bit about what God taught me as I studied the book of Colossians this past summer. When I study a book of the Bible, I tend to read it over and over. Sometimes I read it out loud, and I read it, and I reread it, and reread it, and reread it. And as I read the book of Colossians over and over, one question kept coming to mind as I read, especially as it relates to the second half of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And here's the question. Why has God given us rules to live by? Why? I know what those rules are, and I know who gave them, and for the most part, I know when he gave them, but, but my question was, why? And I'm deliberately not using the word commandments there, because when we say the word commandments, we typically think of the Ten Commandments, but I'm talking about much more than that. I'm talking about God's comprehensive instructions for life. Why has he given us those rules to live by? For some of you, this may sound like an odd question, but I think the answer to this question is critical in helping us frame Paul's exhortation to pray in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Because the second half of the book of Colossians is absolutely chocked full with God's instructions for life, his rules to live by. Or, uh, Colossians 3 and 4, sorry. And the Bible itself is absolutely full, if you've ever read it, of God's rules for life, his instructions for life, his exhortations and commandments for life. So why has he put them there? He seems pretty concerned concerned with getting them in there, so why? And I bet many of you have never thought about that question before. Perhaps you try to live by his exhortations and live by his commandments and instructions, but you may have never asked that question, why? And for many of us, if we're honest, the answer to this question for us is, well, God gave me a moral code because he wants me, better yet expects me, to be a good person, all right? So he put those rules in there because he wants me to be a good person. So let me respond, if that's how you feel about why God's put his instructions to live by in the Bible, let me respond this way. Does God know all things? Yeah, you can respond audibly. It's okay. Does God know all things? He knows everything. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything that's ever crossed your mind. He knows every motivation of your heart. The Bible says, where can you go from his presence? Where can you run from him? If you go to the heights, he's there. If you go to the depths, he's there. Before a word is on your tongue, isn't that scary? He knows it. He knows all things. So do you think expecting you or me to be a good person is a realistic expectation? <laughs> let, me, let me put it this way. Can we put your heart motivations and your thought life on the screens for everybody to see this morning? New. No. God does not expect us to be good people. He knows that we're not good people. That's why he sent Jesus to be our righteousness, amen? To redeem us and call us his own and to change us and make us more like Jesus. Perhaps you see God's instructions as an opportunity to feel better about yourself. You know, you measure yourself against other people and you think, you know what, I pretty much do what God says. That's not true, by the way, but you feel that about yourself. So it helps you be okay being you. It helps you to appease your conscience. That's not why God put his instructions for life in the Bible. Some of you who know your Bible, you might point to Romans 7 verse 9 and say that God gave us his law, his commandments, so that we might recognize our sin 
and thus our need for him. And I would agree. I would agree. That's one of the reasons God put his instructions in the Bible. But if that's all his commandments are for, if that's all his instructions are for, then once the law reveals your sin and you realize you need Jesus, why even pay attention to them anymore? There's got to be some other reason. There's got to be some other answer to this question. Why did he give his instructions to us? I want to point to the answer because, again, this is going to help us frame Paul's exhortation to pray in Colossians 4, verse 2. And the answer is in 1 John. John writes this. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his, say this word with me, commandments. We're talking about God's instructions for life. And his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that good? I like that. We're going to talk about this because some of you think his commandments are burdensome as far as I'm concerned. But we're going to talk about this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Here's what John is saying to us. God's love for us is the foundation for his directives, his commandments. They've been given to us out of love, and they are not burdensome for that reason because his commandments for us are an expression of his grace. In fact, his commandments empower us and enable us to be victors and overcomers. In other words, God has given us his instructions for our joy. God has given us his life instructions, his commandments for our joy. I've got a 16-month-old little girl. We adopted her in August of 2014. She is so much cuter than your kids. She's unbelievable. And we already have rules for her. And one of the rules that we have for Kaya is that she cannot touch the fireplace ever. Because this time of year, those of you who are from uh, the great white north know this, that our fireplaces burn day and night all the time during this time of year. Did we make that rule arbitrarily that Kaya cannot touch the fireplace? No. Do we make it so that she would have some direction as to how to be a good person? Did we make it so she could compare herself to other children that do touch the fireplace and say, I'm better than them because they touch the fireplace and I don't? No. Did we make that rule so she could live up to our expectations? No. We made that rule for her joy. Because if the fireplace is burning day and night and she touches the darn thing, will it or will it not rob her of joy? It will rob her of joy. The same goes for our Heavenly Father. Out of, the, out of His grace, He's given us His life instructions for our joy. Now, for those of you who think, you know what, I don't believe that. I don't think I buy that. Let me just run through a couple for you. Ephesians 5, 18 says, don't get drunk on wine. You know Why? Because puking your guts out over a toilet because of too many tequila shots is not a joy-filled experience, okay? Like, I'm just going to be straight with you, all right? We're just going to talk about this together now. It is not a joy-filled experience. Next time you see somebody do that, or for some of you, there will be a next time you do that. Let's just be honest, okay? When you're doing that, okay, think to yourself, just, just, just for me. Is this a joy-filled experience? (laughs) If I would have obeyed God's commandment to not get drunk on wine, would I have more joy than I do right now? Yes, I would. Okay, Proverbs 22, 7 says, The borrower is slave to the lender. Do you know why? Because being in debt up to your neck is not a joyful experience. 
God didn't put those rules in there to shame us. He didn't put them in there arbitrarily. He didn't put them in there to saddle us with a heavy burden to live up to his expectations. He put them in there for our, say it with me, joy. Okay, so from that perspective now, let's look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. It's up here on the screen. Paul says, one verse today, this is it. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Go back one slide because I'm still reading that verse. (laughs) Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The first piece of Paul's exhortation when it comes to prayer is to be faithful. Be faithful. So the Bible says this exhortation, God gives us this instruction in a whole lot of different ways. Six times in the New Testament, we're told to be devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians actually says to pray without ceasing. Here Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be consistent in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Always be praying. No matter what you're doing, where you're going, you should be in prayer. So God is commanding us to pray. He's commanding us to pray fervently, to pray often, to be faithful in prayer. In fact, we're not to stop praying. So you might be thinking, never stop praying. Like, I got to work, you know? Like, I have a job. Like, I can't be on my knees all the time. Or, Or maybe you're thinking, that feels like a heavy load. To always be praying all the time, to be constant and consistent in prayer. But first, John just told us that God's commands are not burdensome, right? So if this commandment feels heavy to you, if it feels like a burden to you to be in prayer all the time, it's likely because you're looking at the commandment through the lens of law and not the lens of grace. You see it? You're trying to live up to God's expectations still. You're trying to be in constant prayer to impress him, and that's not why he gave you his commandments. He gave them to you for your joy. So he invites us to pray constantly. The the temptation here is going to be to to walk away and say, okay, God wants me to be a better person. He knows that prayer will help. I certainly don't pray enough. So after today, I'm going to get consistent in prayer. But that's all guilt-motivated, trying to be a better person. You might walk out of here and feel bad for not praying consistently, and you might get things back in order for a day or two and pray constantly for a day or two, but you, know, you and I both know that's not going to last, is it? Because guilt-motivated righteousness never lasts. But if we see God's rules from his perspective, if we know that they're for our joy, this command feels very different. So let's look at it through the lens of grace. If God gave you his instructions for your joy, do you think he would instruct you to do something you can't do? No. He's made access to himself available to you at all times. If God commands you to be in his presence in prayer, then it must be possible, right? So in commanding us to pray without ceasing, to be devoted to prayer, to remain steadfast in prayer, to be faithful in prayer, God is actually telling us that it's possible. He's telling us that we can talk to him all the time. 
So the guilt-motivated prayer, not the guilt-motivated prayer, but the person who prays out of guilt says, yeah, that pastor's right, I should really pray more. And they walk out of here with a heavy burden on their shoulder. But the grace-motivated prayer says this, God, by his grace, has made ongoing, constant communication with him a real possibility. Jesus has opened the door to God. I can go into his throne room with confidence. No ritual, no special clothes, no sacrifice, no recitation, no mediator between me and God. Just me and God talking any time I want. The grace-motivated prayer says this. I can pray anytime, anywhere about anything. I can be consistent in prayer. I can be faithful in prayer. I can be constant in prayer because I can pray anytime, anywhere about anything. God has made ongoing communication with him a very real possibility in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know the Bible actually encourages us to annoy God with prayer? Do you know that? It really does. It really does. He doesn't get annoyed. It's just a metaphor that the Bible uses. He says, keep knocking, keep knocking on the door in prayer. Annoy me with prayer. I love it. Can I speak life to you this morning? God delights in your prayer. He wants to talk to you even when you've sinned, maybe even especially when you've sinned. He loves you. He loves to hear from you. This is not a command to make me feel guilty for not praying enough. It's not a command to make me feel ashamed. It's, it's a command to remind me that I can pray anytime, anywhere about anything at my office desk on my morning commute, before dinner, after dinner, in summer and winter, and most importantly, when the Arizona Cardinals absolutely hand it to the Green Bay Packers today, I can pray at all times, anytime, anywhere, about anything. This command to be faithful in prayer is not a, you should be consistent, but it's a command that says, by the grace of God, you can talk to God anytime you want to, constantly, in fact. Now, that's grace. It's a different way to look at it, isn't it? But even when God gives us such a gracious command and opens the door to making ongoing communication possible, most of us stink at prayer, don't we? <laughs> most of Did that sound harsh? A little bit? Okay, let me, I'll, I'll say it a different way. Most of us really stink at prayer, okay? Does that feel better? Like, most of us don't walk around like, I, you know what, I'm having a difficulty with managing my time because I'm praying so much, you know, like I'm not able to get things done. Like we don't, people don't lay on their deathbed and say, you know what, I regret spending so much time in prayer. You know, that doesn't happen. Most of us aren't really great at prayer. Do you know why we're not great at prayer? Because we really only pray when life hits a bump, right? It, most of us are caught in what I like to call the cycle of prayerlessness. The cycle of prayerlessness goes like this. We just kind of live here. We pray occasionally. We pray sometimes. We're not faithful in prayer. We're not constant in prayer. We're not consistent in prayer. Some of you are. Many of us are not. And then life hits a bump. We hit a crisis. It's a financial crisis. It's a marriage crisis. It's a relationship crisis. It's a, I didn't study for my physics test. Oh, God, you invented physics. Tell me about physics. <laughs> crisis. It's some kind of crisis in life that drives us to our knees in prayer. And then we become prayerful people. We live in prayerfulness, and then it wanes, and then we're back again until the next crisis hits. So what's the change? What changes from prayerlessness to prayerfulness? What's the key word here? Well, it's crisis, isn't it? It's when life hits a bump. 
when we hit a, when we have a big interview coming up, when we experience anxiety, when our marriage is on the rocks, when your kid is on the rocks, when financial difficulties hit, whatever that crisis is, you start to pray. Listen, even the atheist is calling out, dear God, save me when the plane is going down, right? Because we hit a crisis and we become prayerful people. And the bigger the crisis, the more fervent the prayer. Don't lie, you know it's true. The bigger the crisis, the more fervent the prayer. We found, even by experience in our life, that crisis is the catalyst for prayer. Do you know why that's true? Do you know why you run to prayer? You run to God in the midst of crisis? Because there's something in the core of your being that tells you that God is the source of joy. He's given me his commandments, his directives for my joy. He's gracious and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he can give me joy. So if I go to him in the midst of crisis, he can either A, take it away, or give me joy in the midst of it. It's intuitive. We know that, that God has given us his instructions for our joy. So when I'm not experiencing joy, that is when I'm experiencing crisis, I run to God in prayer in such a way that he can replace my crisis with joy. So perpetual crisis equals perpetual prayer. Constant crisis equals constant prayer, right? So here's today's key lesson. Uh, Make really stupid decisions that cause crisis in your life all the time, and that will cause you to pray. Let's close together. Lord, we... No. That's silly, right? That's silly. And the great news is that Paul has a different idea for us. God has a different idea for us. Look what else Paul says about prayer. He says, continue steadfastly, be faithful, and he says, be watchful in it. I love that word, watchful. Paul says, be watchful in prayer. Be watchful. That word can also be translated, be alert in prayer. Be vigilant in prayer. Be on the lookout in prayer. Well, alert to what? Watchful for what? Vigilant in what? 1 Peter 5.8 says this, be sober-minded and be watchful. Same word, be alert. Because why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Does that feel like a crisis to you? It does to me. How about John 10.10? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've came that you might have life and have it abundantly. You see the same idea we started with? I came for your joy, but what's happening? You have an enemy that's trying to rob you of joy, that's trying to devour your joy. So be alert, be on guard, pay attention, be watchful. Recognize this, men and women of God, that the battle, the crisis, doesn't just show up when you feel it. It is ongoing every moment of every day. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in dark places in heavenly realms. We have a very real enemy, a very real adversary that seeks to devour our joy, seeks to rob us of life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And honestly, I'm convinced that most of us have no idea that we're in a spiritual war. Because if we did, we'd pray more, wouldn't we? If we were watchful in it. We're like a soldier that walks out on a battlefield with Birkenstocks and a beer koozie, aren't we? It's like, listen, man, like this is a battle. This is a war. Take the Birkenstocks off, put the beer down, gear up, be watchful, be alert, be vigilant, be on the lookout because you're in a battle and your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. Listen, men and women of God, we have a real enemy, a real adversary that is after our marriages, our kids, 
our church. He's after our unity as believers. His desire is to rob us of life and joy. He promotes shame and secrecy and heartache and broken relationships. And we walk around and watch this stuff happen in life like it's accidental. It's not. We have an adversary, a very real enemy. So we must be watchful in prayer. Let's finish it off with this. It's the third thing that Paul tells us about prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, be, be faithful now, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul tells us to be thankful. Be thankful in prayer. Now, this might come as a hard truth if we really understand it, if you really let it saturate your mind and heart this morning. It's difficult. You can always be thankful. You can always be thankful. If you let that sink in, that's a little tough to swallow. It doesn't cost you anything to be thankful in prayer. You run out of stuff to pray for, just be thankful in prayer. As long as you're drawing breath, there's something to be thankful for. And rather than telling you all the things that you can be thankful for, because I don't know you, you've got things to be thankful for. The fact that you're sitting in this worship center this morning means you've got something to be thankful for. The fact that you're sitting over at the venue or chapel, Cactus, Mountain Valley, means you've got something to be thankful for. But rather than telling you all the things I think you could or should be thankful for, I just wrote a bunch down for myself. I'll share them with you. Maybe you'll find a friend in me and some things that you can be thankful for like I can. I've got my health. I've got a great wife. I've got a really great kid. I can read. I can write. I have health care. Canadian health care, but health care. <laughs> I've got a car. I've got a safe house that's climate controlled, praise God. I did not go hungry yesterday. I never have. I have friends. I have a really great church. I love my job. I can hear. I can taste food. I can be thankful because education is accessible for me. I can be thankful for my wonderful extended family. I can go to God in prayer anytime about anything, anywhere. I felt the sun on my face today. I woke up this morning. I can sing along with some pretty outstanding music here at Scottsdale Bible Church. I have partners in ministry that I love dearly. I get the privilege of serving on an elder board with some of the godliest men I've ever met. And I can be thankful because two and a half years ago, I moved to what Forbes magazine called the world's most livable city to a church that welcomed me with open arms just in time to see more snow in one winter that I had seen in my entire life up to that point. I can be thankful for even that. I've got so much to be thankful for. Let me, let me, just, let me just say this to you. Just, just you and me. You do too. You do too. I love when Pastor Daryl used to encourage us, like, you know, you say you have joy in your heart. Tell your heart to tell your face. <laughs> it's just sitting in for some of you, isn't it? It's like rolling laughter there. It's like, some of you, like, it's going to be an hour and a half. You're going to be at lunch. <laughs> tell your face. You didn't tell your heart to tell your face. Now I get it. Um, 
Listen, men and women, we really have so much to be thankful for. And the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We have a very faithful God who has been very, very good to us when we did not deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. He's poured his grace out onto us and given us his commandments for our joy. And he's made prayer a realistic possibility for you and me. And we have so much we can go to him and be thankful for, don't we? So Paul says to us, be faithful in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. Be thankful in prayer. God absolutely loves to hear you pray. So let's do that right now. God, teach us to have ongoing, constant communication with you. Teach us that we don't need to jump through hoops. Teach us that we can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything, no matter where we are in our hearts, in our heads, in our lives, no matter where we are physically, we can come to you in prayer, and you will always hear us. Thank you, God, that you know our hearts. You know a word before it's even on our tongue. You know us You knit us together in our mother's womb. And so when we call out to you in prayer, you sing over us even, your word says. You take joy in us when we come to you in constant communication. Teach us, O God, to observe and identify that we have a real enemy, a real adversary in the world. So we need to be alert in prayer, be vigilant in prayer, and be watchful in prayer. That we're always watching for the work of the enemy so that we may come to you in prayer, call out to you in prayer, and trust you in prayer in the midst of the battle. Teach us, O God, to be thankful for so much that you've given to us, for the common grace that you've poured out onto all human beings, for the rain, for the sun, for the snow, for the coal. God, for our families and friends, for our church. In everything, God, teach us to be thankful And let that gratitude drive us to our knees in prayer. God, may 2016 be a year of joy for this church because this church becomes a church that is devoted to prayer. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, Amen. Amen.